Let's uh, keep our Bibles open and uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word tonight, we thank you for David. We thank you for the praises he offers you. And we pray that your spirit would be speaking to us tonight from it. Amen. Amen. Well, if uh, you've been with us, uh, you know that we're in this series on psalms. And we've had some uh, psalms which have been quite grim in some ways. David has been uh, casting his cares upon the Lord. But tonight we get a shift in Psalm 8 because we're looking at a a psalm where there is praise and honour to the Lord God. So as I was reading this and thinking about it and meditating upon it, it brought to my attention three questions that I thought would help us as we looked at this psalm together tonight. The first question is, how, what is our image of God? How big is our God? Because so often we narrow down God to our size rather than look at God as he is. Secondly, what's the status of mankind? Because how we look at mankind will affect what we do. And then thirdly, what does this psalm tell us about Jesus? Now, we don't know exactly when David wrote this psalm, but I'm sure you can imagine the situation. We know that as a young man, as maybe a teenager or an early adult, he sat on the hillsides tending sheep. Now, if you've got any experience of being out in the, in the mountainous areas when there was no electricity and it was a clear night, you'll know what the sky must have looked like It was dotted with thousands of stars. It was vast. It was vast compared to David himself. And this psalm begins and ends with the same phrase which emphasizes the adoration of this psalm. It's both reverent and intimate. The God whose glory fills the the skies is our Lord. So what we have here then is a hymn of praise And the people of God were encouraged to sing praises to their God because his name is majestic in all the world. And he he crowns us with glory and he is crowned with majesty. So, our Lord is majestic in all your name. I hope you can read that. The gunge channel is slowly getting in the way, but never mind. And secondly, we see it's a hymn of praise that the people of God were encouraged to sing to their God. And so it's a fantastic psalm for us tonight. But the first question I've got is, what is our image of God? What do we think of when we think of God? What do we see? We need to recognise, of course, that we live in an age where, in our country in particular, some people would claim that there's no God at all. Others who wouldn't claim there's no God, make gods of things that are really important to them. So they might have a great emphasis on their motor car. Or maybe their social media is really important to them and it becomes like a god. Or what about war games that are done in gaming on computers? People make gods of different things. But what are we seeing What are we seeing? Well, the writer of this hymn praises and starts and finishes by acknowledging the fact 
that his God is real, it's present, and he's their God. Look at verses 1 and 9. He says that he is a covenant relationship. He's their God. He rules over all the earth. He makes the claim that this God he's writing about is their God. He's a God of the Israelites. And this is a great place for us to start off with tonight. Can we do that? Can we categorically claim that this God of the Israelites is our God? If so, then, of course, it begs the question, doesn't it? What type of God are we talking about? What's he look like? If I asked you, I used to teach and I said essays, and if I asked you to write an essay on your image of God, what would you write? It would be somewhat difficult. Well, the psalm portrays a God who isn't small. He's a God who's not limited to small places. No, we read in verse 1, he's a God of all the earth. And he's a majestic God whose glory fills the earth and the heavens. He's a God who fills the heavens and all the earth. Is this our image of God? Do we really believe, like David, that God's glory fills the earth and the whole of creation? That is, it fills man, who's the head of the creation, right down to the smallest wriggling creature, all made and all supported and nourished by the divine bounty of God. Or to put it this way, we could go to the highest mountain in the, uh, in the Himalayas, or we could go to the lowest trench in the sea. We could go to the extreme east. We could go to the extreme west. And we couldn't get away from where God is. Is this our image of God? Do we really believe this? The truth of this, of course, will alter our perception of the world in which we live. It will lead us to sing praises to this God. Such is the glory of God that we read of in verse 2. Despite the presence of enemies and opposition, even the weak and the small will declare praising God. Children and infants, that is the weak and the immature. Now, in case you think, well, this is just found in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, we see exactly the same in the New Testament. If you remember that instance on Palm Sunday, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he healed the blind and the lame in the temple, and little children saw these things, and they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David, Matthew 21, verse 15. So what did Jesus' enemies do? Well, they complained. They got very angry and indignant because what the children were saying about Jesus. And Jesus replied by quoting this verse that we've got in front of us. He said this, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. Now, if these leaders of the people had been angry before, they must have become even more angry because by identifying the praise of the children of Jerusalem with Psalm 8, Jesus validates their words 
showing them to be, to be proper. He was indeed the son of David, the Messiah. But he also interpreted their praise as praise not of mere man, which were mere son of David would be, but of God. Because the psalm says that God has ordained praise for himself from children's lips. And so, God overcomes his enemies by the marvel of little children and praise. They sing in their simple faith. And so David's first and main point in this psalm is that we should worship the Lord because his name is majestic in all the earth. Now the praise of children is also found in other parts of the New Testament in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus declares that the kingdom of God is made up of the weak and the small. He welcomes children to himself. And what do these weak and mean mature witnesses do? Well, we read in verse 2 of this psalm, they silence the foe and the avenger. God meets the challenge of discord with 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 the words of a weak and small people. Now, just to uh, emphasize this point, I've been uh, reading over the last few weeks about the lives of some of the revivalists that we've had in our world. And in the 18th century, George Whitfield preached in, uh, in Moorfields in the open air, and he writes letters about the persecution he received. He wrote this. I cannot help adding that several little boys and girls who were found sitting around me on the pulpit while I preached and handed me people's notes, though they were often pelted with eggs and dirt thrown at me, never once gave way. But on the contrary, every time I was struck, they turned their weeping eyes and seemed to wish they could receive the blows for me. God, he says this, God make them in their growing years great and living martyrs for him who, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, perfects praise. And so we see here in this psalm that God's praise can come from the weak and the small. But we also see evidence of God and his nature and his power through his creation. Look at verses 1 to 3. It refers, of course, of course to the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2. He declares that God's glory can be seen above the sky. Verse 1 and verse 3. And in fact, we only have to go out at night, don't we, to see the evidence of the power and the might of this creator. And of course, David didn't have what we have got. That is today's evidence of telescopes and electronic instruments to know how big the universe actually is. And I'm going to have to read this to you because it's a bit complicated. The National Geographic said this about the universe. The sheer vastness of outer space and all its surroundings, if you could travel at the speed of light, and the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second, it would take you eight minutes to to get to the sun from Earth. To go from the sun to the centre of the Milky Way would take about 33,000 years. The Milky Way belongs to a group of some 20 galaxies known as the local group. To cross that group, you'd have to travel 2 million years. The local group belongs to the Virgo cluster, part of an even larger local supercluster, which is a half a billion light years across. 
To cross the entire universe as we know it would take you about 20 billion light years. How big is our universe? The psalmist claims that God created that, and it's this God that we worship. And so the question for us then is, do we trivialize God? Or do we really honor him for what he is? It's a challenge, isn't it, to each one of us. And we read in verse 3, the work of your fingers, suggesting the ease and the artistry with which God made the universe, despite its vastness. And it's the same finger of God that Jesus employs to exercise his power over demonic activity in the New Testament. And so as we see this, we see this must be an antidote to all the pride and self-glorification to which humanity is prone. What are our thoughts, our fears, our troubles, our joys, compared with the infiniteness of the universe? What are human abilities, human achievements, human kingdoms, compared with God? as set forth in the starry heavens. Now, of course, there's a danger here, isn't there? There's a danger that we, make, we have an image of a mighty God who is distant and remote, not one that will have any dealings with the smallness of us in a gigantic cosmos. Well, the Bible reassures us on this issue. And I I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. We're on page 724 in your pew Bibles or Bibles on your chairs. Isaiah 40, verse 29. Sorry, Isaiah 40, verse 25 to 31. Let's have a look at this together. Look at it, I'll read it out to you. To whom will you compare me, writes the prophet? Or who, what is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out their starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, Not one of them is missing. So he's talking again about the creator God. So why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. So, in Isaiah, we see that he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. So we do have a God who's strong, who's mighty, but we also have a God who cares for those who are in trouble and who are not well thought of by society. And so, he says he will renew their strength. And so what have we got here? We've got a great, big, powerful God that takes an interest in individual people and nations 
This is what the Bible shows us. Now surely then, the church of God, which contains followers of Jesus, can follow God's concern for the weak and the lost. Because it's when we do this, we see God's spirit working. People coming into relationship with God through Jesus and God's kingdom being extended. As I said, I've been reading uh, books about the revivalists. And we see this with the revivalists. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army and others, illustrate this aspect of God's character. As these people preached the sinful nature of those listening to them, the good news of salvation, the need for individuals to come to Jesus seeking forgiveness for their sins. They also put into practice the love of God through providing help with social, educational and health needs. These revivalists showed the practical love of God to people and so aiding the witness to the saving grace of Jesus. When people are healed of diseases and problems, they come to Jesus. They come into faith in him. They come into his kingdom. Now you might say, well, that was, uh, you know, that was part of our history. What about present day? Well, if you want to read about present day, lead, read and listen to Robbie Dawkins, for instance, who wrote a book, Do Greater Things to Activate the Kingdom to Heal the Sick and love the lost. A man who leads ministry to those who are suffering. I heard him uh, a couple of weeks ago at New Wine speak of their time in Afghanistan. A difficult environment. So, verses 5 to 8, we read more concerning the nature of this creator God. We read that God made mankind a little lower than heavenly beings. But we have a great God. A God that is over all the earth. But secondly, my second question, what does, it, what does the psalmist tell us about what is man? What's he say about what is man? So what is our understanding about human life and the status of mankind? Now this is important for all of us because what value we put on human life will affect our attitudes, our behaviour and our values the way we run our societies, what we do with our money, how we expect to fulfill God's instructions to mankind, how we look after the environment. It all comes from what we think of mankind. God shows us by his attitude towards mankind how we should treat each other, whether we respect or disrespect them, the way we speak to people, how we think of them. And this can be seen on a personal level right through to organisations. And then at the larger scale, countries and politicians. So, whoops. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. What a value that gives to mankind. You have crowned him with glory and honour. And this is really important, isn't it? As we consider the, the shortness of our lives, the limitations of our faculties, the smallness of our impacts upon the work. Yet we read here that the Lord is mindful of us and cares 
before us. It teaches us, of course, about the, something about true humility. We are taught by Scripture to feel unworthy but not worthless. When we look at the vast expanse of creation, we wonder how God could be concerned for people who constantly disappoint him. Yet we read in verse 5 that he created us only a little lower than heavenly beings, which is often translated as angels. And so, the next time you consider yourself and you question your worth as a person, remember that God considers you highly valuable. He created us at the top of his creation. So if you can see that, what a wonderful thing. Ryle, the commentator, says this, man was given the high position of ruling over the earth, but forfeited it when he sinned. Yet he will regain that position in Christ, who will subject all things to himself when he comes again. And so this brings us, of course, to the question of the creation and our responsibility for it. How are we to be responsible for his creation. Well, God gave human beings tremendous authority to be in charge of the whole world. But with, authority, with great authority comes great responsibility. If you own a pet, you know you have the legal authority to do with it as you wish. But we also have the responsibility to feed and care for it. So how do we treat God's creation? Do we use our resources wisely? God will hold us accountable for our stewardship of his world. So that's the second question. What does this tell us about humanity? He holds us in the highest esteem. But thirdly, what does this psalm tell us about Jesus? This has been one of the underlying questions that we've been looking at in this series on the psalms. Well, Psalm 8 is not messianic. It doesn't, in its own words, point to the coming of the Messiah. But verses 5 to 8, if you look at them again, they're picked up by Paul and the writer of Hebrews in their exposition concerning who Jesus is. And so we see the words, you put everything under his feet. And this, this verse is applied to Christ in Ephesians 1, verse 22, Hebrews 2, verse 6 to 10. The reference, uh, the reference of the psalm is to mankind generally, but assumes its full meaning to be what, what the apostle here declares it to be, that the dominion which belongs to man is nothing less than universal, but this dominion is realized only in its fullness through Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate man. And so, it's really important. Psalm 8 is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who restores what Adam lost. Now we know, of course, that mankind has accomplished some remarkable feats in, in his gaining dominion over the creation. Think of all the wonders of modern science, including medical science. And yet all of these accomplishments are tainted by sin. Proud man boasts in them, doesn't acknowledge the ability to discover scientific facts has been given to him by God. 
like the builders of the Tower of Babel, proud modern man uses his scientific breakthroughs to proclaim his independence from God. But what science doesn't do is it doesn't bring reconciliation to God. It doesn't bring us to God. Only God can do that. And he does that by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to provide the sacrifice for our sins and to fulfill Psalm 8 in a way that we cannot. So Hebrews 2 cites verses 4 to 6 of Psalm 8 and then he applies it to Jesus. And so he says, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so uh, what we see here that uh, through this psalm is that man as created reflects God's glory. But the son of man, Jesus, is the original pattern, is more fully realised and reflects the same glory far more perfectly than mankind can ever do. And so, although it's not messianic, it does point us to Jesus Christ. And so therefore, the psalmist finishes again with these same words, worship the Lord, because his name is majestic in all the earth. Now, these psalms are, some people call them hymns, some people call them poems, and they're not always easy to apply to our everyday lives. What are we going to do tomorrow morning? But I've got five things that I think we can actually take from this psalm that helps us in our Christian life. So five things. We can be reminded that we should be bowing down in awe before our majestic creator. In other words, we can put God into the correct place in our lives. By treating each people, person with value and respect because they are created in God's image. I think the psalm is very clear on this. It gives us a true value for humanity by encouraging all of us to love and fear and serve God as the only way to make life count, putting God into the centre of our lives, by being good stewards of God's creation. Yes, we are high in the created order, but we're given the responsibility for his world. And, and not lastly, and not uh, just simply, but by going out and actually enjoying God through his creation. Isn't that a wonderful thing? If God is there in all of creation, we should be out to enjoy God as we go out. Now, for a lot of people, we're coming to the end of the holiday period. And I'm sure that for some people, they've been on mountains or they've been in by the beach. Okay? If you haven't been, we've yet to go. Um, but uh, I'm going to some mountains later on. It should enable me to enjoy God who created those mountains and help us to see his reality. So there we have it. A great psalm. A psalm of praise and honour to our Lord God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for David. We thank you for the way he sat on that hillside with those sheep and he saw the stars and he worshipped you as the living God who created them. We pray, Father, that you'd help us to put God into the right place in our lives, to acknowledge that we are humble beings created by you for your glory. Help us as we come to this communion service to remember Jesus who took the ultimate sacrifice for us, who died on that cross so that we could have a relationship with you. Amen.